encourage you to turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 27. As you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, and just again invite you to join us this evening at Camp Good News for our uh, monthly Sunday evening service. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 10, and it's a passage that I began considering some months ago. I was thinking about uh, actually immigration and, and what it meant in the life of the believer and how we as Christians should view the other uh, people who are different from ourselves. And I was looking at Acts chapter 10. So this evening we'll be talking about Acts chapter 10 and the relationship between Peter and Cornelius and the idea of, of worship and the other and our interactions with, with people who may not be the same as, as we are in various circumstances. So I'm excited about that. Also, just uh, re- you've probably seen this in your bulletin for several weeks now, but March 6th, we have a baptism scheduled right now, and if the Lord is, is laying on your heart to be obedient and follow Him in, in baptism, I encourage you to, to contact me this week, and we can talk about being baptized on, on March the 6th. I, I believe that's the correct date. If it's not, I think the correct date's in your bulletin, so there we go. Well, why don't you stand with me? As we look at Luke chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verses 23 through 27. Remember, Jesus has just, uh, Peter's just confessed that Jesus is the Christ in Luke, and Luke uh, tells us that Jesus responds that Peter's correct, and then talks about his uh, upcoming suffering. And then we read this in verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his Father and of the of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let me pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for our time of of worship that we've had. We pray that we would continue to worship you now as we look more closely at your word. We pray that our hearts would be soft. And and Father, uh, the things that are asked of us demanded of us in this text are, are great and profound, and we have no ability to do these in and of ourselves, and so we ask for your grace in our life as we strive to do these things in your power. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. We've talked before, as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, about the various religious groups that existed during Jesus' earthly ministry the various religious groups of first century Jewish life. Uh, On one end of the spectrum, you had the Herodians, and the Herodians were very accommodating to Rome. And then slightly less uh, on that end of the spectrum, I'll use the word liberal, although it doesn't mean the same things in uh, our current culture today, but in more slightly less liberal in first century Jewish life, You had the Sadducees, and then a more conservative group, you had the Pharisees, and then on the the far right wing, you had the Zealots who were willing to overthrow Rome, and then you had another group, the Essenes, that were just kind of off in in left field. But those were kind of the major dominant religious groups that you have while Jesus is engaged in his earthly ministry. 
And among the Pharisees, that more conservative group, you had two prominent teachers, two very famous rabbis that ministered during Jesus' lifetime. And they were so prominent, their teachings have affected Judaism ever since. And one teacher's name was Shammai. Shammai's came from a very wealthy, aristocratic family. And Shammai took a very strict interpretation of the Torah. And not only did he teach people that they needed to obey the, the Torah to the most minute detail perfectly, he also taught people that they needed to obey all the oral laws and all the oral traditions that had been passed down. And so a person that was a disciple of Shammai would not only need to know the Torah, they would need to be able to follow all these oral laws and traditions as well. And in fact, oftentimes when you see Jesus interacting with Pharisees, he's probably interacting with disciples of Shammai. They taught a person that needed to wash their hands a certain way, they needed to be ritualistically clean, and it was very difficult for a person to follow all of Shammai's commands and regulations and very difficult to be his disciple. In fact, Shammai would only take those in his school who uh, proved themselves worthy to study the Torah. So you can imagine that the common, ordinary people would have little hope of being able to follow all the ritualistic rules that Shammai had. That was the school of Shammai, very, very rigid, very, very structured, very difficult to follow. That was one of the prominent schools within the Pharisees. Another teacher was named Hillel. And Hillel took a little bit more of a relaxed view towards the Torah. Hillel's desire was to have everybody be able to participate in Jewish life, to to come into the Jewish faith and and to be able to read and understand the Torah. Unlike Shammai, Hillel came from a, a more modest background. He was poor, and so he had a desire to see that the masses come and understand the Jewish faith as well. In fact, it's said that one time a a pagan, a Gentile, came to Hillel and he said, look, uh, if you can tell me, if you can teach me the Torah while I stand on one foot, I will become a Jew and convert. And his point was, if you can explain all all the Torah to me in just a very short period of time, I'll convert. And Hillel said this, he said, what you do not wish done to you, don't do to others. That is the whole of the Torah all the rest is commentary, go and study it. Okay? And so that's Hillel. Hillel and his disciples, a little bit more laid back, have a desire to be very inclusive, sometimes take a little more liberal interpretation of the text of the Torah. You can see that the disciples of Shammai and the disciples of Hillel would probably live very different lives, and in many respects, you'd be correct. And you could look at the way that a disciple, a Pharisee, was living and identify which rabbi he was following. For example, when it came to the issue of divorce, the disciples of Shammai took a more uh, stricter understanding of when a person could divorce. The disciples of Hillel said a person could divorce for any reason whatsoever. You could tell which school a disciple was a part of based on how they lived their lives. And as they lived their lives, they tried to emulate their teacher, their rabbi. Disciples of Shammai want to live like Shammai. Disciples of Hillel want to live like Hillel. All of this puts you and I in a very difficult situation this morning. 
All of this puts you and I in a very difficult situation this morning. What do I mean? You and I aren't disciples of Shammai. You and I aren't disciples of Hillel. You and I, who are believers who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, are disciples of Jesus Christ. And our task, our goal, isn't to emulate Shammai. Our task, our goal, isn't to emulate Hillel. Our task is to emulate Jesus Christ. And what have we just read about the life that Jesus Christ is going to live? Let me turn your attention to the text again and remember what he just read in verse 22. In verse 22 of Luke 9, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Our rabbi, our teacher, is pursuing death. And to live like Christ, to follow Jesus Christ, our rabbi, our teacher, our master, means to follow him in suffering. The main idea that I want you to get from the text this morning as we look at the terms of discipleship that Jesus offers his disciples, the main idea that I want you to grasp is this. Becoming Christ's disciples... Becoming Jesus Christ's disciples does not mean making some minor cosmetic modifications to your life. Becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ does not mean making some minor cosmetic modifications to your life, but rather it means your immediate and violent death to self. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ does not mean making some minor cosmetic modifications to your life. It means your immediate and violent death to self. It's a radical idea, but it's what Jesus Christ is calling us to. So often I believe that we're suffering under the delusion that all we need to do to follow Jesus Christ is make a couple small changes to our life. In other words, I'm doing okay, but I understand I need to follow Jesus Christ, so so maybe I need to to give a little bit more of my time and money to the church. Or or maybe I'm doing okay, but but probably what I need to do is is read my Bible a little bit more. Or maybe what I need to do to be a better follower of Christ is to, to be nicer to my neighbor. And we have this delusion that all we need to do is make a couple minor modifications and we'll be Christ's disciples. What Jesus Christ is telling us here is that to be his disciple requires something much more profound, and that is our death. It's our death. And so what I'm going to be encouraging you today to do today is to drop dead, <laughs> to follow Jesus Christ in the discipleship that he calls you to as we look at verses 23 through 27. What we're going to do is, first of all, look at the terms of discipleship that Jesus offers, and then look at the benefits. So firstly, let's look at the terms of discipleship that Jesus Christ lays out, and they're there in your text in verse 23. Please read that with me. Verse 23, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now remember, Again, the goal of a disciple is to look like his or her master, the rabbi, the teacher. That's why in Scripture, for example, whenever we see the Lord's Prayer, the disciples of John 
or the disciples of Jesus come to, to Jesus and say, hey, hey Jesus, uh, the disciples of John were taught to pray by John. Now you teach us to pray. John's disciples were able to learn how to pray by emulating what John did. Now we want you to teach us what to do, and we're going to do what you do. In Luke chapter 5, remember we looked at the, the, the Jesus' words on fasting. And remember what prompted Jesus' teaching on fasting? Some people had come to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, uh, the disciples of John fast, the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples are eating and drinking. In other words, they're coming to Jesus saying, you're responsible for the conduct of your disciples because they're emulating you. Now, if someone came to me and said, hey, uh, I saw someone in your church, I saw, I saw Paul run a stop sign the other day, I'd say, so? It's not my fault. I told him not to do that a hundred times. But in Jesus' day, a disciple, a disciple is, or a, rather a rabbi, a teacher, is held responsible for the conduct of his disciples. They're living like he lives. So Jesus now is telling his disciples, here's what it looks like to live like me. You want to follow me? In fact, at the beginning of the verse, verse 23, remember he's been talking to his disciples, the 12, and now at the beginning of verse 23 he says, and he said to them all. In other words, he's saying this to the larger group now, all those who are kind of hanger honors or, or following him in some sense, and maybe there's an assumption, I'm with Jesus, I'm kind of in this crowd, I'm his disciples, I'm, I'm his disciple, and Jesus is saying this, look, if you really want to be my disciple, if you want to bear the name disciple of Jesus Christ, Here's what discipleship looks like. Here's what the terms of discipleship look like. There's going to be three. You might want to write them down. The first one is to deny self. You want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? You want to say, you know what, I am Jesus' disciple. Condition number one, term number one, is to deny self. It says if anyone wants to come after me first, let him deny himself. Denial of self begins with a, a a mental paradigm shift, saying, okay, instead of pursuing life for myself, I recognize that I need to deny self and deny those things that I desire in my flesh and turn from them. That is a radical idea in our culture. In fact, as I've thought about this idea of denying self, I've wondered if it's even possible to truly communicate the depth of the instruction here. We live in a culture that pursues self with a vengeance. In fact, I would say this. Not only has our culture come to the point where we believe that we have the right to pursue what is our own pleasure, we believe that there exists a moral imperative to do so. In other words, we've come to the point in our culture where we believe it's wrong not to pursue those things that bring us pleasure. And so we believe that we have a right, we have some sort of moral obligation to seek out those things that bring us pleasure. I was reading an, an article this past week by a, a columnist named David Sirota, and he wrote this, I believe, uh, maybe 18 months ago or so. And uh, he, the, the article is entitled, From Shared Sacrifice to hedonism, from shared sacrifice to hedonism. And his point is that our culture has shifted from this idea of, of shared sacrifice as a country to a hedonistic uh, culture. And he uses an example 
Franklin Roosevelt's words to the country at the onset of World War II and compares that to the recent addresses by President Bush and President Obama whenever they were calling the country to do difficult things. He quotes these words of Roosevelt as Roosevelt, at the onset of World War II, spoke to the American people. Listen to what Roosevelt said. Roosevelt says, Every single person in the United States is going to be affected. Business profits are going to be cut down to a reasonably low level by taxation. Americans will have to forego higher wages. All of us who are used to spending money for things that we want, things, however, which are not absolutely essential, are going to have to do without. We will have to forego that kind of spending. Can you imagine a politician today getting up and and trying to call the American people to sacrifice? It just doesn't happen. Our culture believes that the pursuit of self is right. The pursuit of our own pleasures in this world is a moral imperative. In fact, my contention to you this morning is that not only is this true of our culture at large, this is true of the evangelical church. The church not only agrees with our our culture that we should be pursuing pleasure, but it's worked itself into the fabric of the American church. I was reading an excerpt from a book. This book was entitled uh, Evangelicalism, the Coming Generation. Evangelicalism, the Coming Generation. And the interesting thing about this book is it was written 20 years ago. It came out in 1991. Can you believe that 1991 was 20 years ago? This chapter three, this guy, James Davison Hunter, in this book, Evangelicalism, The Coming Generation, he begins it with these words. I want you to listen to what he wrote. He says, religious truth as embodied in a theology is not merely a matter of, a, of the mind. What we believe, religious truth, isn't just something that exists in our mind. He says, it, it, it invariably makes claims on other dimensions of the believer's life. He talks about evangelicalism in the, at the turn of the century in the 1900s, early 1900s to 1950s. He says this, evangelicalism, at the heart of it, really from Puritans on through the 1950s, evangelicalism, at the heart of it, was a moral code orienting believers toward austerity, self-denial, and self-discipline. In other words, there was within evangelicals, within evangelical Christians, this idea that we were to deny self. That was part of our, our moral code, part of our, our fabric, who we are. And he goes on and he gives many examples of this. He talks about the, the Protestant work ethic, this idea that we were to deny selves and, and work hard and provide for family. And he talks about many of the things that evangelicals chose not to participate in. He gives some specific examples of you know, how, how evangelicalism, evangelicals of ages past didn't go to the theater. They didn't uh, engage in idle time. They viewed uh, the pursuit of, of pleasure in the world as a, as a bad thing. Okay? They didn't engage in some sporting activities. They ob- observed the Sabbath. Now, let me be careful here. I, I, w- I want to make a point, but I want to be clear on what the point is that I'm making. It's what happened in the evangelical mind among solid believers, is they said, look, Christ calls me to deny self. 
And so instead of pursuing pleasure in hours of entertainment on end, I'm going to forgo doing those things, and instead I'm going to focus on serving others. And the church, for example, was not a place that, where believers came to be amused and entertained or, or their needs met. The church was a place where people came to meet other people's needs. Now, something bad happened. Let me just acknowledge this. Something bad happened in evangelicalism. The bad thing that happened is that those things that evangelicals were avoiding, they became legalistic about it. And they believed that by not going to movies, they were achieving righteousness. Or by not participating in sports, they were achieving righteousness. Or by uh, engaging in a certain number of activities a day, they were achieving righteousness. And that was bad. But let me suggest to you that we have turned from legalism in most evangelical circles into some sort of perverted pursuit of pleasure. And now, it doesn't even enter our minds that we should perhaps forego some activities that bring us pleasure. We have this idea, this, this misconception, even among evangelicals, that we should be doing everything we can to maximize our own enjoyment in this world. And so the idea of, of spending hours a day watching television or, or time on the weekend watching movies, it doesn't even enter our minds that that might not be the best use of our time. It's completely foreign to us. And it affects church life as well. The idea that our church doesn't exist to meet our own personal spiritual needs is an idea that's foreign to us. And so often, churches are focused more and more on how can I help people achieve the, their maximum potential, individual potential, instead of how can I get people in the church so that they will begin to meet the needs of other people. It's a radically different mindset that is seeped into our churches. And we don't even see anything wrong with it. There is an unhealthy preoccupation with self. Ministries, instead of being designed to help the body meet the needs of others, now they're designed to meet our own needs. It's a phenomenon of self, and there's numerous examples of it. Think about books that have been produced in the last 50, 60 years. Christian books that used to be designed to, to uh, challenge us and, and cause us to die to self. Now they focus on us and celebrate the self. And, and they couch it in religious terminology, but the, the result is the same. It's, it's self-esteem, it's self-worth, it's self-actualization, it's your individual preference. It, it's a bizarre, anti-biblical state that we live in. And God, brothers and sisters... God calls us to something better, something different. And the first term of discipleship that Jesus gives here, if you want to be my disciple, don't pursue self, deny self. This is such a profound idea, and it affects us in so many drastic ways. I can't even begin to, to, to really touch on all the different ways that this, this would affect us, right? It affects it affects how we spend our evenings. It affects conflicts that we are engulfed in. You know, the person that's pursuing self is going to be a person that's engaged in a lot of conflict. But a person who denies self is going to be a peacemaker. Denying self affects how we spend our evenings. It, expects, it uh, affects what we do within the church. It affects how we give. It affects how we view suffering. Denial of self is a profound 
profound activity to engage in, and discipleship of Jesus begins with it. I would encourage you, I would encourage you to beseech God this week and say, God, what does it look like in my life to deny self? That's the first term of discipleship, deny yourself. You want to follow me, deny self. In fact, let me just give you an illustration, Philippians, you want to see an example of denial of self. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, Paul says this, do nothing from rivalry, this is Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. You want to see what denying self looks like? Look at Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus Christ. So often our focus is on ourselves. Humility, denial of self, begins not just by considering ourselves lowly, not just by saying, well, I I guess I need to work on myself. Denial of self begins by looking at the interests of other people. I was in a seminary class one time, and the, the professor was talking about leadership and what leaders need to do and leaders need to do this for themselves and leaders need to do this for themselves and leaders in a church need to to make sure that uh, this happens and it happens and goes and leaders you need to make sure that you love yourself make sure that you love yourself where where are you getting that where are you getting that one of the scriptural injunctions is for us to love self professor said well you know jesus sums up the the two greatest commandments he says uh, love your neighbor as yourself. So, okay, uh, <laughs> but what's that command there? What's the command there? Jesus isn't saying, hey, people, I know how much you all love your neighbors. I, I know, you guys, I'm worried about you. You're loving other people just way too much. Take a little you time, right? You know, you're number one. Don't forget it. No, Jesus knows our natural tendency is to love ourselves a whole bunch. No one has ever had to come to me and say, Daniel, I'm worried about you. You're loving yourself too much. Other way around. What am I saying? Where am I? I love myself too much. Let's just put it that way. I don't have to worry about that being a, a sin issue, not loving myself enough. That's the first term of discipleship deny yourself, and these words of Jesus should cut like a knife in our souls. So condition number one of the terms of discipleship, condition number one is to deny self. Condition number two is to take up your cross daily. Number one, deny self. Number two, take up your cross daily. I think the words of Jesus here, sometimes it's hard for us to grasp the impact of what he's saying. One of the reasons is because the cross doesn't have quite the, the, the gory image that it would in Jesus' day. If you come into my house and, and open my front door, uh, knock first, uh, you would see a, a cross, right? Maybe in other places in my house, you'd see little crosses up on the wall. In your Bible, some of you on your Bibles will have a cross, or uh, some of you are wearing cross necklaces. The cross in Jesus' day is a symbol of death and of humiliation. Imagine instead if you open my front door and there on my wall is a hangman's noose and a picture of a gallows. You're like, that's a little gruesome. 
or you walk into my living room and there's, there's a couple of pictures. There's a, a picture of a, a, a gas chamber and then there's a, a picture of a lethal injection table and, and there's uh, all these instruments of, 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 of torture and death that you see pictures of those things hanging on my walls. It'd be, it'd be gruesome. It reminds you of, of, of death. Jesus' words here are gruesome. The cross is a symbol of execution. Jesus is saying, die. Pick up the lethal injection needle and follow me to the table. Take the hangman's noose and let's go out to the gallows together because we're going to die. The words, take up your cross, have lost some of their oomph in our culture because we don't view the cross as a symbol of execution. They've also lost some of their oomph because this phrase, a barrier cross, has kind of slipped into casual use. Barrier cross means something like, this is my little trial, this is my little cross to bear. There's a uh, far side cartoon, perhaps you've seen it, where there are three ducks, and there are two female ducks sitting on one couch, don't overthink this, and then there's a, a male duck sitting on an on a armchair and He's all puffed up and, and, and blotchy and poofy and stuff. He's reading his newspaper, and the, uh, one of the female ducks, presumably his wife, looks at the other duck and says, hey, it's just Hank's little cross to bear. He's allergic to down, and that's that. Right? In other words, it's his cross to bear. It's just one of those things, right? And that's kind of how we look at this idea of a cross to bear. A cross to bear is some sort of temporary setback. It's some sort of mild thing that we have to bear. Or maybe it's even a severe illness that it's our, our cross to bear. Jesus says, no, no, no. Pick up your hangman's noose. Follow me to the gallows every single day. It is a moment by moment, day by day, month by month decision to die to this world. And to say, I am no longer alive to the pleasures of myself and the pleasures that, are, that I find in this world. I'm dying to those things. And instead, I'm pursuing my own death, my own demise. It is a radical, gruesome picture here that Jesus is painting for his disciples. You want to follow me? You want to be like me? Let's go die together. Because that's where I'm headed, and it's where you're headed as well if you follow me. You're going to die to yourself. In fact, this death to self is the basis upon which we live the rest of our lives. Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Paul would say this. He says, we know our, our old self was crucified with Christ in order that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Romans, or Galatians 2, 9, uh, Galatians 2, 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, you and I have the hope of life because we have died with Christ. And now... Our objective as believers is to continue to die to self, to pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. I'm doing okay on time. Let me, let me take a little bit of an excursion here. If you want to, 
turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. If Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then you come to the book of Colossians, if you get to any of the T's in the New Testament, you've gone too far. Colossians, Colossians chapter 2, what I'm trying to get at here is the line between legalism and picking up your cross. We're agreed that, doing, that having a list of regulations and saying, I'm, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to, that's legalism, it's no way to pursue God. But I fear that we as evangelicals have replaced legalism with lawlessness, with, hey, I'm going to pursue my pleasure, uh, hey, you can't tell me what to do because I'm free in Christ, and so I'm going to do all these things. Picking up your cross means not being a legalist, but it also means not lawlessness as well. The legalist and the person pursuing Christ, catch this, they're going to do a lot of the same things. <laughs> they're going to do a lot of the same things, but for radically different reasons. Look, look at Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at the cross and, and, and put it in Colossians chapter 2 in the beginning of Colossians 3, and, and I hope you see what I mean. Let's begin in verse 12. It says that we have been buried with Christ in baptism. We were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So in other words, as we were baptized spiritually with Christ, became one with him through, through placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we, we died. And now, just like Christ was raised, we've been raised too. Verse 13, and you, were, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our sins, all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These, uh, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay, so catch that first picture. You and I, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, no works, just our faith in Jesus Christ, have had our sins forgiven. We have been 100% completely forgiven, nailed to the cross, our sins. Well, now what do we do? Paul says this, Therefore, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink and or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He's saying, now, because all your trespasses have been dealt with, don't let someone put you under some sort of yoke, some sort of legalism. Verse 20 says, if Christ, you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Don't handle this. Do not taste. Do not touch. Uh, touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. What he's saying is, look, if all your sins have been dealt with, why are you still living like a legalist? Your sins have been, have been dealt with by, by Christ. Don't submit to the demands of this world, which look good, but are completely useless in truly dealing with your sin. Then he says this at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3. He says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Brothers and sisters, this, I believe, is one of the crucial spiritual principles to understand how to live the Christian life. I don't embrace legalism because legalism is completely ineffective. What do I embrace? I embrace the cross. 
And as I pick up the cross, this instrument of execution on a daily basis, I no longer pursue the things of the world. And so the legalist is right in the sense that the legalist recognizes that some things in life are wrong. And my fear is that we, in embracing grace at times, fail to embrace the cross and truly understand what it looks like to live by the cross and die to self. Jesus says, look, you want to be my disciple. First, deny yourself. Secondly, take up your cross. Have a Christ-focused austerity as you follow me. And that brings us to the third term of discipleship here. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Jesus says, take up your cross daily, and then thirdly, follow me. As I pursue this difficult path to Jerusalem where I'm going to suffer and die, Jesus says, follow me, be like me. I think this helps us understand in passages like Colossians 1.24 where Paul says we, we fill up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. As you and I suffer, uh, Paul says, uh, that he, he says, I, I will, that's Philippians. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, And I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. That is, in other words, the amount of suffering that, that people are going to do in Christ's name wasn't completed in Christ. Those who are going to follow Jesus Christ are going to continue to suffer. We're going to fill up what wasn't completed by Christ's suffering. Not in the sense of filling it up and, and, and earning salvation, but filling it up because the total amount of suffering that's going to take place in Christ's name is ongoing. And I'm not saying that every moment of your day should be filled with misery and, and suffering. But I will say if you can look at your life and say, there's no difficulty here. There's no consequence for me for following Jesus. I would ask you to, to seriously ask yourself the question, who am I truly following? Who am I truly following? The person who follows Jesus Christ denies self, picks up their cross, and follows him. Amy Carmichael was a missionary to India for 55 years during the first half of the 20th century. She wrote a poem entitled, No Scar. Entitled, No Scar. Listen very carefully to her words. Hast thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as, as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. Lean me against a tree to die and rent. By ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet, as the master shall the servant be. And pierced are the feet that follow me. But thine are whole. Can he have followed far? who has no wound, no scar.
believe she's absolutely right. Is it possible that we're following Jesus Christ if there are no wounds, no scars, no difficulties in our life as a result of following Christ in discipleship? One time, Amy Carmichael was asked by a young lady, what is missionary life like? And Amy Carmichael replied, missionary life is simply the chance to die. May that be true of whatever vocation we choose in life, whatever path we choose in life. May we say, this path that I'm choosing is simply an opportunity for me to die. Motherhood is simply a chance for me to die as I follow Jesus. Being an engineer at Caterpillar is simply a chance for me to die as I follow Jesus. As I'm uh, engaged in ministering to my friends at school, it is simply a chance for me to die as I follow Jesus. Those are the terms of discipleship for Jesus. Now, let's look at the benefits. Let's look at the benefits The benefits of discipleship we see in verses 24 through 27. And as we look at these verses, what we see basically is is this. Uh, You and your life that you love so dearly cannot both be saved. That is, your soul and this earthly life that you wish to pursue cannot both be preserved. Jesus has just laid out some very difficult words concerning discipleship. You can imagine if you go to a job interview and you're talking to the person who's interviewing you and the person says, look, uh, here's the deal. Long hours, lack of respect, low pay. You interested? Hey, sign me up. Is this, is this church ministry? Um, no. I'm very, I don't work very many hours at all. Um, just kidding, elders. Uh but here's, here's what Jesus is saying. Look, yeah, I've just called you to some very difficult terms of these discipleship. But here are the benefits. Here's what you're gaining. You're gaining your life. And it's somewhat counterintuitive here. You would think the best way to preserve your life is to pursue that which brings you the most pleasure in this world. If you see an opportunity for pleasure, take it. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Verse 24, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life specifically, for my sake, will save it. It's not going to bring you the greatest pleasure by simply granting all your desires. The path towards life is sometimes the path of pain. Pain brings benefits. It's true in our physical lives, right? This past week, I was listening to the radio Wednesday afternoon, and I heard this report, maybe some of you heard it, about this report about uh, diet soda. Some of you guys hear that report about diet soda this week? Basically, it's bad for you. Who knew, right? Um, but they say it's really bad for you. And I've heard it a lot before, and I've been kind of convicted about I, I drink a lot of diet soda during the week. And so I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop drinking diet soda for, for, for a period of time here and then assess biblically what does it look like to reintroduce this into my life someday. I'll tell you, I have had some crazy headaches over the last couple days. Why, why would I keep on doing this? The moment I had my first headache, I thought, I should just grab some sort of, how bad can diet be for you? Well, you know, the path of health is sometimes a painful path. Exercise is painful for a moment, but it brings fruit eventually. Spiritually, painful things bring about great reward. 
The logic that Jesus gives here is seen in verse 25. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What's the benefit of of, uh, obtaining everything that has a finite value if you lose that which has infinite value? He uses words that are financial in terms of profit and loss, gain and profit. What's the benefit of gaining all of this if you lose that which is infinite? It doesn't make any sense. Scripture often contrasts the benefit and and loss, the benefit that God offers and the loss that comes from following the world. For example, 1 John 2, 15 and 16, John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world, and we see it's, it's passing away. These things don't last. Whenever I was uh, in, in school, all my friends collected baseball cards and, and passed them out, and I was really bad with baseball cards because I didn't understand the relative value of them, right? A person that understands life rightly says, look, th- this world is passing away, and I'm clinging to something that only has a finite value at the cost of that which is infinite. It's a foolish decision. So the first benefit of discipleship, number one, is you save your life. Number two, you get to participate in God's kingdom. He says this in verse 26, whoever's, in verse 27, whoever's ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. He's alluding here to the book of Daniel. When Daniel describes the coming of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven. There came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion. Listen to this. To him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. What is the benefit of discipleship? What is the benefit of accepting Jesus Christ's terms of discipleship? The benefit is you get to participate in Christ's coming kingdom. That's what Luke is telling us. The terms of discipleship are high. They're demanding. What is offered here is of infinite value. And there's a real possibility, there's a real possibility that you will not be allowed to enter God's kingdom. In and of ourselves, we have no right to enter God's kingdom, right? But through faith in Jesus Christ, through acknowledging our sin, turning from our sin, and placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone, becoming saved, receiving a new life, we have the opportunity, we we will be able to participate in Christ's kingdom. We're saved. Now, my fear is that some people assume that they're saved and may not have this new life. And this morning as I talk about the terms of discipleship and the benefits of discipleship, and you say, you know what, 
The terms of discipleship are, are too high for me. I have, I have no desire to, to turn from the things of this world. I love the physical and the sensual things of this world so greatly. I have no desire, no matter what the benefit, to participate in that. I would say you should be very concerned about the state of your soul. Because I believe that the person who's truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ has a new life. And as you hear Jesus say these words about what it means to follow him, I believe the believer should have a sense of conviction. God, I want to follow you more closely and more deeply and be more like you. When I first came to Bethany Baptist Church about ten and a half years ago, sometimes people would give me this compliment. They would say, when you teach, you sound so much like Pastor Rich. That was just like, I was like walking on air when people said that to me. Why? Because I admired Pastor Rich so much, and I realized that even though I didn't, you know, I didn't sound as good as Pastor Rich did, I understood that what they were saying is they saw the same commitment to God's word in me that they, they saw in him. I was becoming like my teacher. That's exciting for me. The disciples of Shammai were excited when they could live like Shammai. The disciples of Hillel were excited when they could live like Hillel. You and I are called to be like Jesus Christ. And becoming like Jesus Christ doesn't mean making some minor cosmetic modifications in your life. What it means to become like Jesus Christ and follow him in discipleship is to die. And that is my encouragement to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your son Jesus that gives us hope of a new life and we desire to follow him in, in, in obedience and to be more and more like him, change our hearts that are my heart that's so hardened sometimes and, and loves myself. Forgive me, Father, and cause me to pursue discipleship with renewed vigor. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus for your glory. Amen. <laughs>